Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran. Good morning. Welcome to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. It is a Monday morning edition on a great feast day today. I'm together with Father Lewis, Father Jeff Lewis from St. Mary's in Spokane Valley. Hey, Father, how are you? Doing good, Tom. Thank you. Did you like how I said it's a great feast day? It is a great feast Was day. That, I like the you, pun. Did you like that? <laughs> People don't know what we're, why I said that. Actually, some wonderful Catholics do. It's the feast day of St. James. Not the lesser, but St. James the Greater. There we go. James the Great. All right. We're up against a break. Uh, When we come back today, we're going to dive into something associated with St. James. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out, drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Welcome back to the program. Father Lewis is going to lead us off with a scripture reading and a prayer. Our scripture passage will come from the gospel that is assigned for the Feast of St. James. Uh, From the gospel according to St. Matthew. The mother of the sons of Zebedee approached Jesus with her sons and did him homage, wishing to ask him for something. He said to her, What do you wish? She answered him, Command that these two sons of mine sit, one at your right and the other at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus said in reply, You do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the chalice that I am going to drink? They said to him, We can. He replied, My chalice you will indeed drink, but to sit at my right and at my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Lord Jesus Christ, as you blessed uh, your servants, St. James and his brother St. John and all the disciples, uh, with your uh, grace and blessings to proclaim your gospel, We ask that same grace upon us this afternoon, that we may proclaim your word and that our listeners may receive your word with great joy and fidelity to your will in all things. And we ask this in your most holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. Appreciate that. So, Father, I got about five or six different themes to cover today, I, I, and I'm confident we'll get through them all. I'm, I believe you. Yes, you do. That's great. <laughs> well, the first one is an easy one. You were participating in a, I don't know if you call it semi-official or just uh, a Catholic family camp. Yeah. And uh, I, we, we had planned to go, we were ready to go, and Carrie and Liliana got sick. Uh. And I thought, this is not going to work. In case what we have is contagious, we are not going to bring it there. And so they were in bed for a few days. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. But um, by Sunday night, uh, Carrie was better. So thanks be to God for that. But um, missed it. We were really looking forward to it. Yeah. So what is Catholic Family Camp? What was it all about? So Catholic Family Camp is um, it's not even a diocesan initiative or any parish initiative. It's uh, the initiative of one of our great families here in the diocese, uh, Brian and Ann Winkler. And um, they have a home up in the um, kind of the foothills of the Selkirk Mountains, which is up in Pottery County, outside of the town of Usk. And um, and they just uh, kind of opened up their grounds to good Catholic families, and and it's just we camp out. There's no program. There's no uh, there's no agenda or anything. The only program is Saturday evening of the camp is uh, 
um, is uh, the mass, you know, that fulfills the obligation for everybody, and and then um, a barbecue potluck to follow that everyone you know contributes to and hangs out. But otherwise, people go up and just uh, hang out the lake or pick huckleberries or ride their bikes or take hikes or whatever they do. So um, lots of uh, families up there. Yeah. So uh, just I I know why I would go. Do you, what is the feedback you get or the insight you have into why something like this is valuable enough to get folks to get in their cars and drive an hour and a half? I think it's, well, what I've heard from folks and certainly what I get out of it is there's something freeing for me that I can just kind of be my Catholic self uh, without um, uh, feeling on guard or feeling like I have to, uh, you know, put up a front that I can just kind of be, you know, natural. And, you know, because it's Catholic family camp to just be um, joyful and unafraid and in, in being naturally our Catholic selves. So we, we have, I mean, I don't even hear many people necessarily having Catholic conversations about faith, but there's something about having that kind of companionship and company that just uh, rejuvenates us. It's sort of like, you know, maybe the, what the apostles experienced in the upper room, where they can just kind of be themselves, safe from the outside world that looks at them harshly, and maybe they're talking about Catholic, you know, Christian things, maybe not, but, but um, when they... Uh, disembark from the upper room, then they can re-engage with new faith and energy and zeal uh, because of that um, replenishment that they receive from one another in the upper room. And so the Catholic family camp, I think, serves these families in much the same manner. That's really neat. I love that. Um, When I think about one of the values of that, it's communing with other Catholics, right? Mm -hmm. You talked about being your Catholic self. Um, I think that that is such a high value when you're talking about young adults, teens, and youngsters, because young people look to older kids to set an example. They want to fit in. They want to be cool. Mm -hmm. And they're watching, especially if it's the cool kid or they're the cool kids, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. And when you have younger kids looking to the older kids and they're on their knees praying a rosary, they are being respectful and devout, and yet they're also cool and fun. Mm -hmm. That washes over and sows into kids in a way that is um, uh, is it, it's hard to quantify, and and it's not something that maybe a lot of folks think strategically. I'm going to set this up, I'm going to make this happen, but for Carrie and me, it is. Mm-hmm. It, it, we have learned through the years that it's important to um, take time to say, how do we get our kids around other kids that they can respect on their terms, but whom they should ought to imitate in the most important terms, mm-hmm. in, in spiritual terms? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's something um, I would like to see more of these kinds of things where 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 people can have that kind of communion, but in a very relaxed social setting. It's one of these when I became a priest, um, one of my uh, kind of concerns, I guess, on behalf of the church was that is our faith and our engagement with the faith just kind of like a one hour a week thing? Or can we be our natural Catholic selves and be able to live that authentic, uh, authentic life all the, all the hours of the week, all the days? And so how can we bring that out there into the world? And stuff like this where we can you know, camp out together. And I wish there were more of these kind of camps. You know, this is the initiative of one family that opens up their home to friends that they know. Um, you know, but parishes, you know, I, I'm going to see this about doing this for St. Mary. Parishes can organize some kind of parish camp out or 
doesn't have to be camping, but some kind of just like you know a social event where where we can get together and and just and just uh, be in communion, and just live life and share life with one another in a very relaxed setting. You know, I so I'm old enough, and I grew up in a setting where that was part of being in a Catholic parish, and we had a very strong sense of identity that wasn't just Catholic. It was, I'm a St. Malachy's Catholic. Mm. And because I was ecumenical, I was also open to the St. Margaret's Catholics in town. (laughs) Down the road. Down the road, (laughs) right? But really and truly, there was a sense of St. Malachy's is not St. Margaret's. Mm -hmm. And even though we're both same town, same school, same whatever, there was... No, I'm at St. Malachy's, and you're at St. Margaret's. And that was a a meaningful thing because, in part, we did a lot of things together. I don't think I'm lionizing the past or um, it's not, you know, going my way, being Crosby type of thing. But there was definitely memories that I have in my head of that church hall just being filled Mm -hmm. regularly with events, just Mm -hmm. stuff that the parish did. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that... That is something, those are a couple of things that we've lost in the intervening 50 years, Um, a sense of um, geographical reality for parishes. That's pretty much gone. That's pretty much gone. I I still remember there was probably a 10-year span in there where one of the questions I would get asked at events is, by Ken and aren't we supposed to participate in the parish that we're geographically a member of? And what do I do if I don't get, if I don't fit with that priest, you know? And, um, and, and I remember that was a conversation that was probably for 10 years. That was a thing. That is not a conversation any longer. I don't remember the last time someone has said, you're not supposed to be going to that parish because you're not in it. Yeah. Yeah. I have heard that recently, but from one of our older parishioners at St. Mary, who's kind of old school in that thinking and, and told me soon after I got here that, we bought our house and we live where we live because we were going to be St. Mary parishioners and they found out where the parish boundaries were and they barely cleared it. They're almost in St. John Vianney, but they are on our side. And um, anyway, but yeah, you're right. Aside from that, I don't, I don't hear that. There's plenty of parishioners in the Valley that, uh, well, you guys sometimes go to St. Jones, you know, cross state lines. And then some people in the Valley go to the cathedral parish or, or any other parish. And then people over there will come here. Just, it's a driving culture now. It's, it's where you can, you know, find where your niche, I guess, you know, for better, for worse. I mean, I think a lot of it is that, um, because the concept of a parish identity is just smaller, um, it's more friends and fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly think, I think some of it is also things like liturgical style, mm-hmm. um, even, um, architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think even higher than both of those is the priest. Yeah. It, for better or for worse, Father, it's still a a bit of a personality based um, priesthood yeah. and liturgy. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, I I think I have a a fun personality for some people. <laughs> so I'm I'm one who Father, kind you of have benefits a from that. You I, have a following. You just do. You do. So, but go ahead. A lot of the youth in the diocese call me call themselves the Jefflings. When I become Pope Jeff the first, they'll all be Jefflings. <laughs> I think that's a little too much, but uh, anyway, I'm not turning them down. So, <laughs> but I mean, you know, for, for better or for worse, I think you're absolutely right that that's an aspect of of church life these days. That there's, you know, I don't, I don't want to make it sound cultish, but there's something of a pastor cult. But 
that's something that uh, there's something you know I see it you know the the personality and the engagement of the pastor has a, a has a tremendous impact on on the larger operations of the church you know and of the of the parish church I mean I suppose you might even see that the on the level of the diocese with the bishops that are assigned to which diocese here or there that uh, the whole tenor of the diocese will start to take on the the flavor of the bishop, so to speak, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and again, for better or for worse, I mean, but maybe that's maybe an aspect of why that's better is that's just an, a testament a testament to uh, to our natural longing for a human community, and we are drawn to people with whom we have an affinity, and um, and we and we just kind of form that community with those whom we already like. Yeah. Well, I, I, you're aware. One of the when when you ask psychologists to identify fundamental human needs, authentic human needs, uh, they'll put either first or second or maybe third belonging, mm-hmm. right? Because belonging entails acceptance. Mm-hmm. I fit. I'm I'm acknowledged, named. I'm affirmed. I'm even celebrated. Mm-hmm. I belong. I fit. Right? People want to belong somewhere, yeah. and I think that there are different um, levels of belonging. And you're absolutely right. Maybe it's because of my visible role in the wider church uh, in, in, in here, but almost anybody that I talk to will immediately go to the diocesan level. Mm-hmm. Oh, your bishop this uh-huh. versus your, this, my bishop that or the other bishop this. It is, it's just a thing. Mm-hmm. And I do think that maybe some of it is connected to what's happened in the church in the last four years. So not only COVID, but prior to COVID with the McCarrick scandal, mm-hmm. the summer of shame, yeah. um, lay people, especially the most engaged, intentional lay people were watching yep. and voted with their feet and their wallets mm-hmm. regarding where they were going to support financially and where they were going to in- involve themselves yeah. personally. Yeah, yeah. And like yeah, I mean that that uh, that scandal opened up, you know, what may have been covered up for a long time, and people are not going to. I think that informed laity will make for just a stronger church. You know, as always, the strong clergy and strong laity. We need we need uh, we need both lungs to breathe for the body of Christ to to flourish. And um, and Bishop Daly here in Spokane has pointed out several times that it, if you look at the course of Catholic Church history. There's ages when the clergy are strong and the laity need to be dragged along, and there are the times in history when the clergy are profoundly weak, and it's the laity um, that God draws strength, uh, uh, draws out the saints, and um, and they they come in tandem, you know. But but the Holy Spirit is going to be working somewhere, and and Bishop Daly has said we're probably right now in the midst of a very important age of the laity because look what the clergy have failed to do, and I think he's spot on. That's a pretty startling statement, but. I, if I pondered it a bit, I'd say sounds right, mm-hmm. um, because I think of the number of lay initiatives that are pressing forward now as compared to when I first started in church work mm-hmm. in the late 80s. Um, it, it was absolutely an essential at the be- beginning of any apostolate to go to the bishop mm-hmm. and say, I'd like permission to operate in your diocese? Uh, is there someone that I can work on that is uh, a delegated authority of yours to make sure that what we're doing is in accord with your purposes? And I'll only want to work to the extent that you desire. Mm-hmm. 
now what I just said there were three things intentionally because that's what I said when I arrived in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I went to Archbishop Murphy and I said, "I'm only here if I uh, I'll only operate under your permission, with your permission, to the extent that you desire, and under a delegated authority." Mm-hmm. And it was something that was um, formed in me, and it was something that I lived. But today, it's a wild west, uh-huh. right? It's uh, through the internet, laity can reach anybody, apostolates can reach anybody. You don't need uh, geographical realities, and, and the bounds of geographical realities just don't stop folks from moving forward in their mission. I think Bishop Bailey's right. Back in a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com. DrTomCurran.com. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis, and we're just uh, just talking, talking, yeah. having a uh, was that what did you call it? Sharing life. Just sharing life. <laughs> just sharing life as Catholics here on the radio. Uh, I want to go back to that statement that uh, Bishop Daly said that it was a it's it's a kind of age of the laity where. Um, uh, the bishops and priests uh, are in, not looking to the laity, but in some ways following after initiatives that ordinarily would be coming from priests and bishops. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, I um, it part of me just I, I it um, that bothers me. Oh, it bothers me. Not 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 the statement, but the reality. Yeah. Right. I've spent the thirty plus years in ministry attempting to support bishops and priests in their apostolates, in their ministry, in their, in their ordained institutional roles. So it's a bit of a sadness for me that, um, that there's this shift that's happening. Um, but I, I guess if I said, um, and you tell me what you think the bishop would say, or just speak for yourself, um, there's a, a way in which I grew up in a time where the laity had a self-identified expectation of pray, pay, and obey, mm-hmm. right? That's You've heard that phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and what's the idea that, you know, you ladies stay in your, stay in your lane, yeah. you give your tithe, right, and just follow the guidance of the priest who's the one in charge or the bishop who's in charge of the priest in charge of all of you. And that does not feel like it has, like, you never hear that, and you don't even really sense that much anymore. I don't know. What do you think about that? I, I don't either. In fact, I, I've used that phrase, uh, you know, a couple of times in homilies at St. Mary, but as like a, a mockery of what is no longer needed, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the church doesn't need laity like that. I've, I've said we, we need all of us to, to do our part to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And if the laity's play, place is to pray, pay, and obey, then, then they can check out, well, as soon as I leave the church doors, I don't have to do anything more. I've done my three duties, and now the priest will take it from here. And, and that's absolutely not, not the case when we're talking about proclamation of the kingdom and evangelization. And so I, you know, I view that as, as a mockery of, of why that, that, uh, under, you know, that uh, undermines 
the greater mission. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so anyway, I, you know, if I, if I if I've heard it before, it's because I've said it. <laughs> nice. Right, well, it's like not pray, pay, and obey, but it's salt, light, and leaven. Mm-hmm. Right. There you go. That's our call to be salt, light, and leaven in the world. Or I say, stand up, speak out, push back. Nice. Right. Yeah. I think that those are those are ways of saying lead, provide, protect. Yeah. Right. Priest, prophet, king. Um, and so if, if we, if the church and the church facing the world is, uh, the way the laity are supposed to be leaven in, in society, mm-hmm. right? Supposed to be salt and light in society. It makes perfect sense that for instance, um, initiatives to, um, take on, um, comprehensive sexuality education in the state of Washington, were lay led, mm-hmm. right? They were formed by Catholic laity. You even know who's in charge, <laughs> um, and, and it's lay people who what they were concerned parents, mm-hmm. concerned parents of Washington, mm-hmm. were the ones that drove it. At the same time, I know, I know, I know, I know that uh, the bishops and priests, especially pastors, have such an important role and voice in energizing the laity to get out and play their part. Because when they're willing to stand up, speak out, and push back and say, lady, take the hill, mm-hmm. right? Take the hill. That has an impact mm-hmm. compared to if it's only laity doing it. Then they're trying to build from below, right? Right. And it's so much more helpful when you can have both. Yeah. You know, the clarion call from the general, right? Even if they're on the back, in, in the back of the battle, at least directing it and saying, let's go. We need more troops up there. Mm-hmm. Go fight the battle. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is that a good image? I think that's a great image. And um, if if Bishop is right that there's kind of like this ebb and flow of the age of laity and the age of the clergy, then those best times of the church, you know, are where are where the laity and the clergy are at their best when they converge. And, um, um, and I can, you know, that would... And the the analogy to kind of militaristic imagery is is of course so crucial because we are in the spiritual warfare and it's going to take all of us to 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 be part of the winning side to remain on the winning side and to bring others onto the winning side with us the side that has already won and um, if we have one without the other then we have sheep without a shepherd we have shepherd without a sheep and we need both to uh, to affect this mission mm-hmm. yeah I meant to that. That's Father Jeff Lewis, this is Tom Kern, and Tenants on Insight, we're talking about um, themes that really are connected, in my mind, to St. James the Greater, um, one of the Twelve Apostles, mm-hmm. one of the sons of De- Zebedee, along with uh, John, and um, uh, Son of Thunder, uh-huh. right? I love that. You read the gospel that was um, where uh, James and John and their mom approach Jesus and say, we want the best spot, Yeah, right? I love that. And then Jesus puts it right down, right? You willing to drink the cup? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, bring it on. <laughs> and and he says, well. And then he says, well, you know, you might have to drink the cup, but these seats for, are not for you. <laughs> these seats are not for you. It's for the ones that are chosen. Yeah. And so, two things about that. The first is I want to start with the theme of chosen, the, the theme of call. Mm-hmm. And a lot of folks are listening. A lot of parents are listening. They got kiddos. I know that uh, the theme of vocations is a really big deal for you. And so talk a little bit about that idea that um, parents help your kids discern vocation. Mm -hmm. What's the seat that has your name on it? You know, that idea. Yeah. So what, what, what I say to parents about that? Or just speak to the folks listening right now. Yeah. 
you know, um, if I'm thinking about like what what I would say to parents to you know helping their children uh, find where God is calling them in their their seats in the kingdom. Um, first of all, I just you know encourage the parents just to be open to anything. I've encountered a lot of parents that might say, well, for example, I know we need priests, but not my son. I want my son to be happy, or they'll say something of that <laughs> variation, which I just don't get that. <laughs> but um, but to be open, you know, this is not you know. You have an influence on your on your children, obviously, and and rightly so. But you know the the most important influence ought to always be God. And and what if God's will is not your will for your son? Well, I want my son to star, to be the starring you know you know quarterback you know for the Seattle Seahawks one day. And uh, so of course he doesn't have time to be a priest. Well, maybe God's vision for your son is otherwise, and that's actually the more sure and certain path for not just happiness for your son. But uh, for the salvation of souls, in how how much the kingdom will be built up if this other path is chosen, so parents just ought to be um, first of all open to anything that God could be calling their children to, and then in addition to that, to not just pray for your children as they discern their place in the kingdom, but to pray with them and to actually talk with them. What is what do you think God might be doing in your prayer life? Have you thought about? priesthood if you're you know your son or your religious life the 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 convent for your daughter um you know i would hope that parents would take an interest in their child's lives that they're you know if they're starting to date and i think that and that's a path toward one vocation so why not take as much interest if they have um, proclivity toward uh, serving at the altar or singing in the choir or these other things that might be an indication of what their religious vocation could be. So to pray with them and to speak with them and not just to pray for them and to speak around them, you know, those are two big things, to be open and to pray with and to speak with your children. Yeah, it's funny. You made me laugh with one of the early things you said because it was reminiscent of the kind of thing that I heard growing up. And, uh, you know, having discerned to the priesthood, but I got to tell you, coming here to this area, um, and, um, bumping into, uh, like a, a more traditional way of viewing vocations. Um, there are a couple of families who has had me shift my thinking. And I want you to respond to it. Yeah. See what you think about this thinking. They said to me, well, what I do is. I have my kids all begin with the default setting that the Lord could be calling you to the priesthood or religious life. So act as if that's your call. And so start walking down that path. Don't wait for the inclination. Don't wait for the, the sense of I'm drawn to it or I see some attraction there. No, no. Start down that trail. Start walking. And it doesn't necessarily mean enter the seminary, but it means start talking, praying, thinking, and acting like I'm called to be a priest. And then if, if you feel the discernment out of that, then that's fine. But begin with the offer to generously make your life available to the Lord in the service of him and his church through priesthood or religious life. Mm-hmm. And then from there, default backwards to... You might be called to be married or to be single. Mm-hmm. And I was really like, wow, that is so, I actually found it really freeing. Mm-hmm. I found it freeing and beautiful. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, what do you think about that? I think, um, I think that's an interesting approach for parents to take. And, um, and a good one in, in, a, in, a, in a sense that 
you know, marriage is the natural vocation, we might say. We are we are built for companionship and and we are built for um well um for uh, uh well, you know, nuptial me- meaning. There's a nuptial meaning to the body. St. John Paul this uh, the Great says this in Theology of the Body. And so, you know, a man is naturally attracted to a woman and a woman's naturally attracted to a man. So marriage is the natural vocation. So left without any outside guidance, you know, a man will f- will find a meaning in, in in why he's here, you know, hopefully expressed in a in a moral and productive way. Um, and so it's not as readily uh, discerned to think about the supernatural vocations of priests or religious life because because those aren't natural vocations, you know. They're not unnatural, but they're not natural. They are supernatural. So if a parent is going to encourage a child to think in terms of the religious vocation as your default, then you're encouraging to to think to think of the of the uh, of the greater realities of heaven. You know, there is no marriage in heaven, but there is the priesthood in heaven, and there is no marriage in heaven, but there is um, there is giving glory to God forever and praising God in heaven. And what if a vocation on earth where that's your natural default to discern that with greater deliberation? From an early age, and as you say, if that doesn't pan out, you you discern God's calling is elsewhere. Then you go to the other one. But the danger of that, and this is the flip side, I was thinking also that could be negative, is that does it does it place marriage on like a lower tier? Um, I know that you know historically, you know, there's saints that have written that the higher vocations are the religious vocations, and for example, among the priesthood, the higher priesthood is a religious priesthood, and so you know, versus diocesan priesthood. And um, that was probably written by a religious. Probably, yeah, I think <laughs> probably a Dominican, if you ask me. But <laughs> my apology if you're Dominican. But um, um, but you know, I th- maybe in one sense there is that you know because again, like I say, there's priesthood forever in heaven. There's there's a re- re- religious life, what they live for, the charisms that are in heaven. But Jesus says there is no marriage in heaven. They will not be given or received in marriage. So in that sense, it is higher, but not in the sense of like one's just better than the other. And and if so, if a parent is going to kind of approach uh, relating with their children and their discernment from that perspective to to be on guard against having them think start to think that marriage is well I wasn't called religious so I'll just settle for marriage like I say like that to Carrie all the time I said <laughs> Carrie I, the Lord wouldn't take me in the priesthood so I just settled to marry you yeah that, that does not win me many points yeah, she lo- you've slept many nights on the couch uh, I yes exactly <laughs> you know it's a it's a subtle distinction between a higher vocation and a better vocation because a higher vocation could be considered objectively, right? And I'm, I'm not threatened by the idea that objectively speaking, it's a higher vocation to be a celibate priest than to be a married layman. That, that doesn't threaten me at all. It's subjectively correct. But better, well, better is more for the person. Yeah. So it's more towards the person. So what was better for me was that for which I was created. So I think that, um, I think there is a way, but it's a subtle way and it might be too hard. It might be too hard for many families to sort that out. Sure. Cause I think many, it's, it's easy for non-Catholics or not well-formed Catholics to simply say higher is the same as better mm-hmm. when it's like, no, it's, it's not, you know, it, it, is it, is it a higher calling to be a brain surgeon than it is to be a veterinarian? I don't know. I, I would say, yeah, it is. It's a higher calling. Is it a better calling? Well, I there are probably a lot of vets I don't want digging into my brain. Right. Right. So better is, is a matter of aptitude. It's a matter of inclination. It's a matter of capacity, all of that. Yeah. 
So, you know, I, I don't know. Is that, is that too subtle of a distinction? No, I think that's a very good distinction. And um, it's not a distinction I had thought about uh, before. So that's a good talking point, I think, as I relate with families and parents about how to um, understand the dynamics between the, the religious vocations and the, the marriage vocation, the natural vocation. But I think it's, uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's artificial. I think it's, um, it's a good distinction. It is subtle. But uh, yeah, I think it helps me. I make well, clarity of it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, and I think that it, uh, it gives me the space to be able to take this kind of conversation and bring it to my kids, mm-hmm. right? So I bring to my kids the idea that John Mark, John Luke, she consider the priesthood. And if the Lord gives you the message that you're not called, that's fine. Mm-hmm. It's totally fine. But default setting, consider the priesthood. My, my daughters, consider the religious life. Mm-hmm. Consider it. The Lord might be calling you to that. And that's a difference. I did it the other way. Mm-hmm. Growing up, I brought the kids. Look, the Lord loves you. He's got a call for your life. I want you to pray and be open. He just might, in fact, call you to be religious. I know it's a pretty rare thing, but he might be calling you. Mm-hmm. And let's get sisters around them. All right, let's get some nuns around them. Let's get the brochures, put them on the table for the convents. Um, and, and I mean that. We did all of those things, all, literally all of those things. Um, but it's such a different thing to say, no, wait a minute, consider it, and then see what the Lord says. And then, again, back out of it if that's not what the Lord has for you. So, All right, Father Lewis, we're up against a break. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about another theme connected to St. James the Greater. On this His Feast Day, back in a minute with Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Carnum with Father Jeff Lewis, and we're talking today about themes connected to St. James the Greater. So there is a St. James, um, uh, and there's a St. James Church in um, in northwest Spain. What's that called? Oh, Compostela. Yeah, Compostela. Yeah. Santiago. Santiago. Is, yeah. Thank you. Santiago de Compostela. And there's the famous walk, the Camino. Yeah. The famous walk. And that's a St. James. Mm-hmm. Now, here's my trivia question. Is that St. James the Greater or St. James the Lesser? I think it's St. James the Greater. So is, who was it that was um, beheaded? Who's the first martyr? That was St. James the Greater. St. James the yeah. Greater. And so is that so his what's body? What's his connection with Spain? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What's his connection with Spain? Cause it... I, I think I read, in fact, I think I was just reading today about a Spanish, I was reading about, um, I got a book on the doctors of the church, and so I was reading on Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, and they were talking about how in Spain, you know, uh, the body of James the Greater, the tomb, it was nearby where one or the other of them was was working, and um, so I, I wondered that for a long time. Like, why why is it called Saint James the Greater, and why do they have the body when he was beheaded in the Holy Land, some three thousand miles away? And it may have been one of those things when Christianity really started to spread that that the relics of major saints were were going with them, so that devotion to the saints and it could help the church to continue to spread, mm-hmm. which is a big thing and. You know, maybe a lot of it was was tourism, uh, but maybe a lot of it was was truly a, a, a pure faith, and um, I think that's how that might have happened. So, have you ever seen? Have you ever been to the church? No, but I'm going on pilgrimage uh, this October, uh, starting in Lourdes, going across the north of Spain, and Compostela is on our way, and then we'll end in um, Fatima. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that's an awesome pilgrimage. Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. Oh, that is really neat. All three of those places are amazing, mm-hmm. and it, and that actually does fit in terms of like map wise. Lords is in the middle of nowhere, right? 
And then, yeah, I guess just, just head directly south, south uh, across the Pyrenees Mountains, right into Spain, because it's not very far from yeah. Spain. And there you go. And you just go straight west from there, and then straight south to Fatima. Yes. Yeah. Well, those. Oh, that's incredible. I, I'm jealous. I have a holy jealousy. Uh, <laughs> but the the Church of Saint James uh, is an amazing church, and they have this huge. Uh, thoroughfare, Th- uh, thurible, thurible, thurible. Maybe there's a huge thoroughfare too, right? Yeah. The, the guy <laughs> that swings that must be pretty big. Yeah. Can you describe it for the folks who don't know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I've seen videos of this on YouTube. So the thurible is the uh, sacred de- uh, uh, vessel, the device that's used to uh, have incense um, in a liturgy, and the thoroughfare is the is the altar server who carries the thurible. And um, so, but in the in the um, church of Santiago and Compostela, um, they have a gigantic thurible. Um, what I mean by gigantic, I mean the size of a of like a like a lazy boy chair. I mean, normally a thurible is you can hold it in your hand. This is the size of a piece of furniture, and um, and uh, and they load it up with who knows how many coals, and then who knows how many handfuls of incense. And um, and then they got it on a pulley system where they'll raise where they start the swing end of it, and then they pull it up so that the uh, um, so that just the sheer force of its uh, of its of its uh, gravity going down in the arc, you know, the, the pendulum force, swing, yeah, pendulum yeah. swing, and just keep it going. And I think it goes not front and back, but left and right between the altar and the people from from transept to transept. And um, and I've seen a video how they have to stop this thing. And they just kind of let it slow down, and then these monks or friars or someone, but I, I believe they're actually ninjas, they somehow <laughs> jump up on this thing and use their own body weight and and grabbing onto it and letting it swing to slow it down even further. So they grab on, spin around, and jump off. And then they do that a couple of times. It's like something out of a Mission Impossible film or something. Mm-hmm. But um, And I suspect that a, a reason why they have this particular thurible in a church like this is because... This is the end of a 500, 600, 700 mile pilgrimage that people are doing on foot, and these people haven't bathed in weeks. And so, I suspect a very practical purpose for this is to mask the body odor. I of all never these heard of that pilgrims. before. I, I don't love know if it's it. true, but I suspect it's part of it. That makes great sense. Wait, but wait a minute, is this is this Camino? Is this pilgrimage? Is that one of the requirements not to bathe, or is that just the history of it? That might be the history of it. Now you've got uh, hostels all over the place right. where you can stop and and bathe. But I mean. That might be an innovation of the last century, but this has been a pilgrimage for who knows how many centuries. You know. Yeah, it's a. It is a. So do you do you know how much do you know about the pilgrimage itself in terms of uh, any insights? Because I I love the theme of pilgrimage mm-hmm. and the value of pilgrimage, mm-hmm. and this is one of the most popular pilgrimages in the Catholic world. Yeah. Now, probably because it's Europe, and so it's easily accessible by all the Catholics that are living in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual idea itself of walking 500 plus miles across the top of Spain to get to the northwest corner of Spain um, itself is a really interesting idea. Yeah. So um, what, what value do you see or what uh, insight could you give us about um, the concept of a, of a pilgrimage? Like, Why would someone make a pilgrimage? Why would that be a valuable thing to think about? So for... Well, I can speak from my personal experience. This this will be uh, my fourth pilgrimage. I, um, I there's this company based out of Indianapolis that is um, a Catholic pilgrimage company that partners with a foundation called the Franciscan Foundation for the Holy Land, and uh, they reached out to me out of the blue. So I had to do some background check on make sure they were legitimate, and they they are. And my first pilgrimage with them was to the Holy Land, 
and then um, we did um, holy sites in France, then Rome, and then now we're doing Lourdes through Fatima. And for me, the the um, the graces and blessings I receive from the pilgrimage is that you know I, I hear about these great sites and these and these uh, these amazing places, and I preach about them and I read about them. But there's something about actually being there that that really gives my my personal faith a gigantic um, you know injection of of new zeal. And for example, the Holy Land, you know, I've I've heard this like it would be great to actually walk in the footsteps of Christ. And then when you're actually there and you are actually walking in the footsteps of Christ, there's something haunting about that that doesn't leave you. It, does, it never left me. And, um, you know, that I, for example, in the, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in, in Jerusalem that was built over Golgotha, where Jesus died, this, the rock of Golgotha is still there. It hasn't been excavated. The church built up around it. And the hole where the cross was put into the rock, the cross of Christ is still there, and it's under the altar it's the Greek Orthodox uh, altar of the twelfth station of the cross, and people go there and they go under the altar and they can they can venerate that spot and put their hands in that hole. Yeah, it's it's really? exposed. Yeah, I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, and there's something really chilling and haunting about that. And and to make a great pr- so I made a great prayer request when I did that. It was a way of reconsecrating my priesthood, you know, to Jesus and the sacred, you know, the precious blood of Christ. When I did that on that pilgrimage, so. The idea of going on pilgrimages for me is it, 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 it in general helps to strengthen my faith. There's an aspect of it that is very retreat-like. So there's a lot of, especially if you go, if you go with a group, there's plenty of time by yourself too. So you're alone with your thoughts and your prayers, and you're collecting yourself while you're there. You make an, an, an intentional, uh, um, you know, a prayer about it, I suppose. And then going back to where we began talking about that Catholic family camp, when you're there with other Catholics on the same pilgrimage. There's something about a, a, a unique bond of fellowship that you have with your fellow pilgrims. There's a group of pilgrims that, from the first pilgrimage I did, sign up for all my pilgrimages. And I have no idea who these people were before the first one. But that created a bond that they've come back on all my pilgrimages. So the, and and they don't, we only see each other on these pilgrimages, it seems like. But, but we pick up immediately where we left off, and we have a great time together, and we have a great friendship and fellowship. And there's something about a pilgrimage that helps that as well. That's really cool. That's just, I mean... Powerful. Thank you for those insights. I, I love them. I, I've never done the the Camino, uh, but it's a goal. It is. It's actually a goal of mine, and it's something I'd love to do with my kids. Uh, or, I mean, not my not not including Carrie, but my my family. Yeah. Would, that would be something that I would love to do. But five hundred miles. I mean, that's probably a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so that that's one of the big challenges, yeah. right? Anyways, and then can all the kids do it? I mean, that's old, you know, and it's a, there's some obstacles in the way. But I would say the closest thing that I've done to an official pilgrimage is there's a seven church walk on Holy Thursday in Rome. Yeah. And so you hit the four major basilicas and then three other churches. And it's a long walk and it takes the whole day. I mean, we leave from the North American College, we'd leave at like six in the morning and then we'd head off and start walking. And it would be probably five, five or six at night before we made it back to the to the college. It would end at St. Peter's because it was close to St. Peter's Basilica. But um, it, there's a kind of a process involved. Like at the beginning, you're excited and you're energetic, and there's lots of conversation, and and then you make it to the you know first church, and and there's a sense of devotion and all of that. But as the day goes on, there are certain stages. 
Like at a certain point, all of a sudden, these people that you're so excited to be with at the beginning of the day, they start to rub your ner- rub on your nerves a little bit, right? Yeah. I, well, this is for me. Maybe you can't say that out loud. Which of the co-pilgrimagers, pilgrims, co-pilgrims, uh, start getting on your nerves? But there's a sense of saying, you know what? I'm going to kind of step away a little bit. And then there's that sense of going within. And, and then, so that's the second stage of, wait a minute now, there's something happening inside of me. And then there's that stage of, wait a minute, I'm getting tired. This, this journey is long. And then I, I'm, I'm starting to feel it. And I don't like it because it's starting to hurt a bit. And, um, and, and then it goes from there up against a break. When we come back, we'll finish this little uh, reflection on pilgrim, pilgrimages and then continue. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Carnum with Father Jeff Lewis. And Father Lewis, just before the break, I was talking about some of the stages that I experienced, even in a one-day pilgrimage, mm-hmm. just walking around the city of Rome to the different churches, and um, how it's a it's kind of a like a mini experience of the spiritual life, right? Yeah. So, go starting at the beginning and then making it all the way to the end to the goal, right? So, going through the period of tiredness and this is, this is a long journey. I'm not home. And then all of a sudden, you kind of turn the corner after you hit the fourth church. Uh-huh. And then you're starting to think the, the, the center of gravity is away from the, the path out. And now there's the return back to home base. Mm-hmm. And if I had to ask, say to you, of the seven churches, which church did we spend the least amount of time in? Which church would it be? Um. Gosh, if you it was the, the seventh Nacon- church, it was the seventh one because <laughs> we oh, were so tired. I was thinking it might be the one furthest away because you're about to make the home bend. So I was going to guess uh, Sacra oh, Cro- yeah, Croce, Santa Croce, uh, yeah. Santa Croce, Santa Croce, or uh, was it San Lorenzo? One of the two. Yeah. They're far out. out. Yeah, once you get past Saint Paul inside the walls and you, and you start heading, you got to go across the city. You go past Saint Mary Major and Saint John Lateran, and then you're like, this is out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But the yeah. last one makes sense. I mean, St. Peter and two. And so you're like, well, that was nice. All right, let's go get some pasta or whatever I, it is I you do. I stepped across the threshold. I made it. Hail Mary, glory be, goodbye. I am heading home. Make that last trek up the hill. But it, isn't that, it's, it's like you're worn out. I was worn out from, from that ride. And, and at that point, it was like I wasn't even walking with the other guys. I was like, yeah, I'll see you back there, right? So it's part of the fallen world, too, that the idea that we need to be cleansed. So is that is that a um, in, in a day condensing some of the experience of a, of a, of a pilgrimage? Um, I think, well, I think in some regard it is. Or um, even just a day, maybe even a day on the pilgrimage could be like that. Um, yeah, I think it can be. Um, with the group that I've gone with on these pilgrimage on these uh, uh, pilgrimages, uh, a key difference is that we're we're not physically taxing ourselves to the extent that you guys did on that on that one day, but there is an element of being taxed because you know we're we're still moving a lot. I remember when we did our pilgrimage in um, some of the holy sites in France. I mean, we saw some great places, and they were all over the you know the center part of France and all the way over to Normandy, and we spent a great deal of time on a bus. And that is exhausting because, you know, 
You're constantly, all right, we've got to re-energize to, to check out this church and to pray here and have mass here. And, oh, we're back on a bus. And we've got to re-energize again over here. And it, it's an emotional pendulum swing. And that was taxing. Um, I just fell asleep. I just took a nap. But I don't know what some other people did. They were still talking and such. So, um, But I think there is an ass, you know, some element of what you described in a longer pilgrimage like what, what I've done. Yeah. Nice. I think that um, the, the concept of a pilgrimage is valuable because it does give a, um, let's call it a, um, a focused spiritual experience mm-hmm. for um, a dimension of life. That is that life is a journey. And so by stepping apart from ordinary life and saying, I'm, I'm a pilgrim and I'm headed on a path to a certain location with a, an intention in mind, with the spiritual ideals that I hope to attain, right? All of that coming back into daily life, I think it can import some of that same idea mm-hmm. that even though I'm in the same house, every day when I wake up, I'm on my journey towards heaven, mm-hmm. towards home. Um, so I, I do think that a pilgrimage can act as a, um, as a uh, concentrated experience that can then be dispersed to provide a pilgrim-like flavor to life. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Um, and that would be a, a beautiful ideal for a lot of pilgrims. In my personal experience, I get back to the day of the ground like, oh, first of all, i got to deal with the jet lag. Then I've got to deal with, well, I'm back here. And I mean, I don't dread coming back to, to work as it works. I, I love what I do as a priest. But, um, but you know, this incredible experience that in one sense is like, I just had like a glimpse of heaven and now earth is back in play. And, um, so I catch these windows of heaven in many ways and pilgrimages are one of them. And then real life takes over again. So on the one sense, it's, you know, it's like you say, it's a, it's a, it's a concentrated, you know, I'm on pilgrimage all through life. And this is a concentrated form of that, that, that helps me to see that in normal life. On the other hand, I caught glimpses of heaven. I caught glimpses of the perfect beauty and goodness and truth, and um, and now the the shadows of of earth have have uh, taken over again. And so I'm I'm still the 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 uh, the, the movie trailer has 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 teased me once more, and I got to keep waiting for the fullness. Well, and I think that it it helps to at least reduce the temptation of saying this is my home, mm-hmm. right? Earth is my home, and when Earth becomes very comfortable. Um, where, to use a sim- simplistic phrase, all my needs are met and all my wants are met. Um, why would I want to leave this behind? Right. And that that kind of theme in um, talks I would give pretty much stopped being needed in, in t- 2019. Uh-huh. You know, with the advent of COVID, that um, or 2020. Um, yeah, all of a sudden, people realize that as things are stripped away from them. Um, but also, honestly, um, just the number of families that have moved, mm-hmm. right? They didn't move because Spokane or Coeur d'Alene or that corridor was paradise, right? It, they didn't. They, they moved because they felt a call and they needed to, uh, you know, I would say flee to Egypt and preserve their baby Jesus, yeah. right? Yeah. And so there's that sense of a pilgrim spirit that is present in many families here that are now what we call refugees. Mm-hmm. They found a refuge here, but they there's no lasting home here. Yeah. 
And that's much more apparent even in their homes. They're in their physical homes. It might be a comfortable home, but they definitely have a refugee spirit mm-hmm. because they, um, because they, uh, uh, they, they didn't choose this as their ideal. It was uh, fleeing from and uh, in a movement towards yeah. something that was necessary, uh, like an imperative from within. Yeah. What you're describing, it suddenly strikes me, is, you know, that's an ex- um, uh, somewhat extraordinary for, for, lay, for the lay faithful, for families, but that's kind of regular par for the course for, for priests, <laughs> diocesan priests, because, you know, I, I was feeling settled, and this is my home when, in my first assignment as a pastor up in uh, Chuila, and, um, but, I, you know, always I knew, like, I'm not going to, it'd be ridiculous to think I'm going to be up here all my priesthood, that's just not a thing. And um, and it was a it was a sorrow when I left, but that's just part of the a part of the deal. And uh, I thought I was getting settled at St. Peter in a six year assignment. And six years is now you know two years is the new six, I guess. <laughs> and I was uprooted before I even thought I might be uprooted and moved here. So it's just part of the diocese. So it always to kind of have it in the back of our minds that that I could be asked to move at any moment. And so life is uh, as a constant pilgrimage of of service and sacrament for the priesthood. And so what you described as um, maybe an extraordinary thing somewhat for the laity is pretty regular for the priests. That's so interesting. So is that theme of pilgrimage part of, um, let's call it diocesan spirituality, specifically around the idea of I'm a pastor of, I'm kind of a nomad pastor, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I've, I've never really heard that before, but is that, is that something that gets discussed? No, I don't think so. But I mean, I think there's merit to that. Maybe it ought to be discussed. I got my um, my priest prayer day is is coming up, and maybe that'll be a thing I might bring up with the others. That there's something about our lives that's naturally an ongoing pilgrimage, um, and um, in in a journey. And and um, how about this? There's yeah. kind of this simultaneous experience of being fully committed, but also completely uh, detached. Right. And uh, one of our pastors, so I was assigned at the cathedral, I was first ordained, where Father Darren Connell uh, was re- made rector then and still is rector there. And, and when I was moved to Chuila, he said, it's a weird dynamic being a parish priest, because on the one hand, you've got to always expect at any moment that you're going to be asked to move, but at the same time, to not let that stop you from diving deep and doing what needs doing in the moment. And so... Um, so I dive in hard. I build strong relationships. At least I try to really hard. And I'm, I'm going to plan on, on the possibility that I'll be here forever at the same time expecting that I can be moved at any moment. And it's a really weird, almost schizophrenic mindset. <laughs> That's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, but I, I like what um, that priest said that, that shared that with you. I think that that's a great insight. Um, and I, I don't think that we appreciate that. I mean, we all know, okay, priests are going to get changed in their assignments. But um, I don't know, maybe it's to circle back to one of the very first themes that we began with, which was the laity are less attached to a geographic parish, um, that it becomes accessible to say, well, if you move, Father, it's not that difficult for people to follow you, mm-hmm. unless you're going back to Chihuahua yeah. or <laughs> down to Tri-Cities, right? Yeah. Then it would be a little bit harder. Well, Father... We've made our journey through the Feast of St. James. That well was, done. That was we pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. All right, folks, this is Tom Kern listening to Sound Insight. Tomorrow, I'm going to be picking up on this theme of the prayer meeting. Uh, we had a prayer meeting last week. It was a wonderful experience. And I do want you folks to know uh, and be encouraged that if you're interested in coming, we'd love to have you there. And um, Father, I appreciate you being on today on Sound Insight. All right, everyone, God bless your day. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.